All right, well, um, welcome to All Nations. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and like our sister Hisan prayed, uh, today we are starting a new series on the book of Exodus. And so it's really cool. We, we went all the way through uh, Mark. We finished with Mark uh, on Easter Sunday, and now we're starting uh, on Exodus. And so if this is your first Sunday with us, you, you picked a, a, great, uh, a great Sunday to uh, worship with us and hope you journey through the whole book. Now, one can argue that Exodus is the most dramatic and exciting book in the Old Testament, maybe in, in, in the entire Bible. Uh, for in it, we have the great story of Israel and, and uh, their bondage under Egypt. Uh, we get the story of Moses, who encounters God at the burning bush. Uh, then he's, as he's um, uh, fighting for Israel's freedom, he goes before Pharaoh. And then there's the story of the 10 plagues and the dramatic Passover. Uh, in it, we also have the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, manna in the wilderness as God provides each day for his people. He leads his people as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Then they reach this mountain called Mount Sinai. A cloud covers the mountain and God meets Moses and speaks to him there. And there we get the story of the Ten Commandments and the golden calf in Israel's great sin and idolatry. Um, we have instructions on the tabernacle, and that's the, the tent of meeting where God wants to dwell and meet amongst his people. It's just uh, an action-packed, dramatic book. It's actually hard to believe that all of these famous kind of epic landmark events in the story, history of Israel, they're all recorded in one book here in the book of Exodus. Uh, Phil Riken, the president of Wheaton College, he writes this. He says, for the Jews... The Exodus is the story that defines their very existence, the rescue that made them God's people. For Christians, uh, it is the gospel of the Old Testament, God's first great act of redemption. Okay, and so why are we studying this? It's such an important book. That's why. Uh, Exodus literally means departure or going out. Okay, Exodus is written uh, by Moses. It's the second book of the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. And over and over again, uh, the writers of Scripture, they point back to the Exodus. They're quoting, they're referring to the Exodus when you're reading the Psalms. Psalm 106 is specifically called the Exodus Psalm. And the psalmist kind of retells the story of Exodus in that great psalm. The prophets, the prophets are always referring back uh, to Exodus as they try to instill hope in Israel as they're in the midst of exile in Babylon and other countries. They're saying, remember Exodus. Remember how God liberated his people from slavery. He is still our God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus quotes Moses over and over through the Gospels. Paul points back to the great redeeming work of God in the book of Exodus. And so really, it is a foundational, foundational book for all of Christians, in all of the scriptures. Um, Exodus reminds us what it means to be the people of God, redeemed by his power and sustained by his grace. But Exodus isn't all just kind of like um, encouragements. It's not all just like rescue and demonstrations of God's grace. It's also a story of suffering. And as we read and as we're going to study through the book of Exodus, we're going to see uh, the dangers of pride, the dangers of idolatry, the sin of unbelief and bickering against God and his sovereign will. And so if you've ever kind of complained about your life to God, saying, God, why are things this way? 
I'm not happy with this. God, I, I think it needs to be a different way. If that's ever been you, kind of bickering in your heart against God, um, hey, uh, that, that resonates with the Hebrews in the wilderness. That as, resonates uh, with uh, the people of God in the story of Exodus. Now, if you've been with us over the past several years, we actually, before we preached and finished through Mark, uh, we, we preached through Genesis. The entire book of Genesis, I think we did about 40 sermons through Genesis. We're scheduled to do about 32 through Exodus. And I'm just really excited because Genesis and Exodus, they're the two foundational pillars of the Old Testament. Okay, they're, they're the two foundational pillars of the Old Testament. Uh, if you don't read it, if you don't know these two books, uh, you don't know God. You won't know what it means to be the covenant people of God, right? Uh, to be redeemed by him, to receive his promises and abide in him. And so uh, it's a really exciting thing for us as a church uh, to have finished Genesis and now uh, be going through Exodus together. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's get into the text. Please turn to the easiest uh, scripture verse for us to turn to, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. I'll be reading to uh, verse 22, and I'll be reading from the ESV and trusting that you're there. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them at the, on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with, uh, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, he shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. The word of the Lord. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you asked, how did I get here? 
How did I get here? Uh, and your mind recalls the sequence of events that, lead you, that led you to that place. Uh, I've been thinking that all the time. All the time as I stare into my son's face, my newborn son, and, and I wonder, man, how did I get here? Or I look at him and I'm like, how did you get here? Right? And it's been such a crazy journey for my wife and I uh, uh, becoming new parents. Yesterday was my son's 100-day celebration. And so for Koreans in our culture, that's a, that's a big deal. And um, so to thank you guys as, as our church family, uh, our family has ordered some Korean rice cakes for you all. And so they're, they're going to be outside after service. And would you just please like honor our family and appreciate us by taking one? We'll be really sad if we go out there and at the end of Sunday, we just have trays full of rice cakes because nobody wanted one. Um, and so we just want to share that with you guys. And I, I want to thank you so much for praying for our family, uh, for loving us and supporting us. Uh, sorry you guys didn't get invited um, to our 100-day thing, but there were only five people there. So not even Pastor DC got the invite. It was just me, Alice, her parents, and, and her sister. So it was really low-key, really low-key. Um, but not all how-did-I-get-here moments are moments of happiness and fondness. Uh, in fact, many times we ask that question when things are going very wrong, right? Uh, when our lives are in the midst of distress and hardship, we then ask, man, how, how did I get here? How did things come to this point and this situation? We ask ourselves, we ask our friends, our spouses, we ask that of God. How did I get here? How did things get so bad? Maybe you're a student on academic probation, and now it's finals, and you're scared of failing. You're on the verge of failing out of school, and you ask yourself that question, how did I get here? Man, why didn't I just go to class? Why didn't I study harder? Why didn't I play less Fortnite, right, or spend less time on Instagram? Man, what, what did I do with this entire year and this entire semester? How did I get here, right? Um, or maybe on a more serious level, uh, families, on the verge of losing your homes? You've asked that question. Back in 2008, when there's, when there's the big housing crisis, right, the housing bubble that bursted, we had many friends, many family members in our churches that lost their homes in that season. And I know for a fact they were asking, how did it come to this? How did we get here? Where now our, 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 our stability our future, we were banking on our home to help support our, our children, pay them through college, and now it's all gone. God, why is this happening to us? How did we get to this place? Well, we should ask this question as we begin the book of Exodus. How is it that Israel ended up in Egypt? How is it that they became slaves under Pharaoh and Egyptian rule? What were God's people doing in Egypt? They're supposed to be living in the promised land, weren't they? I mean, Genesis ends, and, and here we are. We, we were supposed to have the sons and daughters of Abraham. They're supposed to be a great nation, blessed by God to be a blessing to others. How did they get into Egypt? How did they become slaves? And the answer that Moses gives us in the very first verses of Exodus is actually they're there because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob led them there. They're there by the sovereign plan, the sovereign work and will of God. There's no accident to their presence in Egypt. Even their slavery, it's not an accident. There's a purpose. There's a sovereign will 
that God has in store for his people. That's why they are there. Moses tells us this by connecting the beginning of Exodus with the ending of Genesis. There's a great symmetry there. In fact, the first six words of Exodus chapter 1 are the exact same words found in Genesis 46.8. I don't think any of us are Hebrew scholars, but if you grabbed a Hebrew Bible and you just looked at Exodus 1.1 and Genesis 46.8, you would actually be able to see the exact same lettering, right? Exact same lettering there. But although the words are same, the context The circumstances, the situation is entirely different. In Genesis 46, Exodus is a place of refuge. Exodus is a place of safety, security, and blessing for Jacob and his sons. In Exodus 1, it seems to be the exact opposite. It seems to be a place where now God's people are going to be oppressed. They're going to become slaves. They're going to become burdened. In Genesis 46, Jacob and his 11 sons, they go down to Egypt from Canaan because they are escaping a devastating famine. If you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph had dreams. He dreamt about seven fat cows and seven lean cows. And these lean cows, they come up from the Nile River and they devour these fat cows. And Joseph tells Pharaoh, this is a sign from God. You're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so to prepare all of Egypt, they built up their storehouses. They prepared with great food, great grain, and resources. So when the famine came, Egypt, sorry if I said Israel, Egypt was ready. They were ready. Joseph's leadership, his wisdom, the visions that God gave Joseph, through that, Joseph was able to save Egypt and his entire household. And Pharaoh was so blessed. He was so encouraged. He elevated Joseph to be the number two most powerful man in all of Egypt. So to save his family, Joseph sends for his father, Jacob. He sends for his brothers, his brothers who had sold him into slavery, right? He sends for them to come down and meet him in Egypt. But Jacob's like, I'm not sure. I don't know if I should leave the promised land. I mean, this is the land that God gave us. This is where we're supposed to be. Egypt is a foreign country. Egypt is not a place where God is worshipped. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is worshipped. Should we go there? Is it safe? God goes to Egypt, uh, J- Jacob in a dream. And this is what God says in Genesis 46, verse 3 and 4. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there... I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God promised Jacob that you have nothing to fear by going down to Egypt. He promised that he would bless them and make them a great nation. He promised that he would be with them as their strength, as their God, as their shield. And for a while, everything worked out great for them. They were really flourishing. They were really doing well as a family, as a nation. Now the question is, why? Why would God do this for Jacob? Why would God do this for Jacob the deceiver? His name means the deceiver, right? Why would he do this for Jacob and all of his sons? His wicked sons who out of jealousy sold their brother into slavery. Why? The reason is this. Because God had made a promise, right, to Abraham. It was all part of God's original promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. God is being faithful to Jacob and his sons because he is being faithful to Abraham and the promises he made to him. And so Israel prospers in Egypt. 
they prosper under Joseph's protection in the land of Goshen. Not only does Exodus 1 refer back to Genesis 46 and Genesis 12, it also goes back to the very beginning of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God commands Abraham the creation mandate. You guys know what this is, right? The cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You know what that means in short? Abraham, I mean Adam, Eve, have a lot of kids, right? Have a lot of kids, multiply, and fill the earth. And this is what we see Israel doing. The Hebrews doing in a foreign land, in Egypt. They are multiplying and they are increasing. And this was a sign of God's blessing. This was a sign of God's presence with his people in Egypt. Um, If you also read our our passage, we're also told specifically how many people Joseph and his sons traveled with, right? Seventy, okay? So there's the 11 sons, Joseph, and their wives, their children, their servants. Seventy people came down from uh, Canaan, down into Egypt, and they would actually depart. When they crossed the Red Sea, the scriptures tell us that 600,000 men, 600,000 men crossed the Red Sea. Tack on the women and the children, that's over a million people. The time that it took to go from 70 to a million, it was 400 years. 400 years between Joseph and Moses. 400 years between Genesis chapter 46 and Exodus chapter 1. But by God's grace, they flourished. By God's presence, they were fruitful and they multiplied and they just filled Egypt. They swarmed all over Egypt. So much to the point where the new Pharaoh was intimidated. So much to the point where the Egyptians, they were filled with dread. That these Hebrews might overwhelm them that these Hebrews might conspire against them. Everything was going the way for God's people, but that was all about to change. Israel was about to experience a measure of suffering that they had never experienced before. Okay. From the moment God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, they had flourished. God had blessed them. God had cared for them. But here, for the very first time in Israel's history, they would experience great and immense suffering in Egypt. Now, before we move on in the text, let me share one important point. Remember what I said, why are they in Egypt? God led them there, right? God led them there. He commanded them to go. And this is just an important reflection and relevant point for us today that I want to share. You can be in the center of God's will and in the eye of the storm. Let me say that again. You can be living your life, okay, And be in the center of God's will, in the very place he wants you to be, in the very place he is leading and preparing for you, and then also be in the eye of the storm. You can be a slave in Egypt, all the while being a son of God, okay? The two things are not contradictory. They are not mutually exclusive. God's faithfulness and our suffering, it's not one or the other. Oftentimes, they're both and. We are sons and daughters of God. We are the people of God. We are in the will of God in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our unemployment, in the midst of our singleness, in the midst of our barrenness, in the midst of our financial struggles and poverty. Those are not signs that God is against us. Those are not necessarily signs that God is is abandoning us and condemning us. No, a lot of times those can be part of God's will 
God's leading, his purpose in your life. So brothers and sisters, do not misinterpret suffering and frustration and failure in your life as God being against you. A lot of times in the scriptures, men and women, the people of God are in the center of God's will in the midst of the storm, in the eye of the storm. If you're the kind of Christian who believes that, man, no, I need prosperity to prove that God is with me, then I'm gonna tell you that your God is not the God of the Bible. There's a lot of us who want to combine, connect God's faithfulness and our flourishing, right? God's blessing, right? And our benefits and our gain and our winning and our accomplishing and our achieving. And if that's what you need to follow Jesus, you say, God, I need these things. And only when you provide and give me everything that I want, everything that I'm praying for, everything that I'm pursuing, everything that I desire, only when you give me those things will I know that you are with me. If that is the condition, if that's what Christianity is to you, brothers and sisters, I want to warn you, your God is not the God of the Bible. Your God is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your God is not the Father of Jesus Christ who was in the center of God's will and that took him to the cross. Took him to the cross. Brothers and sisters, would you consider the truth, the bigness, the sovereignty of who our God is today as we open the scriptures and look at Exodus? Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on suffering, he once said this. He said, there is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. Okay. There's no better learning place for us as Christians than through trials and sufferings. Okay. Uh, it is a great tutor that brings us to humility. It's a great tutor that makes us desperate, not for the things of this world, but desperate for God and his hand and his presence and his salvation. That's what suffering does. It presses us to our Savior. And there's nothing else that works in such an efficient, in such a powerful way than God uh, working through sorrows and trials right, to teach us what it means to trust in Jesus and to believe in him. In verse eight, we're told this is how things went wrong. We're told how things went wrong for God's people in Egypt. There now arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay, a new Pharaoh rose up to power and he didn't know Joseph. And here we're introduced to one of the great enemies of God. One of the great enemies of the people of God. I mean, seriously, if you read through the scriptures, it's like Satan, enemy number one, and then Pharaoh is number, Pharaoh, Judas, right? They're like right there, right? But Pharaoh is one of the great enemies of God, and we're gonna see the exchange, the dynamics of power between Pharaoh's will and God's will. Pharaoh's word and God's word, okay? There's a great power dynamic, great power contest between the gods of Pharaoh, the will of Pharaoh, and the gods of Moses and the will of or the God of Moses and the will of our God. This new king, this new pharaoh over Egypt, uh, he didn't know Joseph. For generations, for 400 years or so almost, uh, Israel prospered in Egypt. The Egyptian kings, they honored the memory of Joseph and how he had saved their nation from peril. They allowed Israel as foreigners to prosper in their land, but a new pharaoh arose 
and he didn't know Joseph. And it's not that he didn't know who he was. It's not that he didn't know the story of what Joseph did. He surely knew that. What Moses means is that he disregarded Joseph. He didn't care. He wanted to do away with any benefits that the Hebrews, that Israel enjoyed in Egypt. He wanted to establish a new reign, a new power, a new authority, and that's with Egypt on top and the Hebrews on the bottom, okay? He wanted to incorporate a new, like, Egypt-first policy, and all of the foreigners, all of the immigrants, all the non-Egyptians should be slaves under their power, under their dominance. 400 years earlier, the Pharaoh at the time, okay, the Pharaoh that Joseph served under, he was so blessed. He was so grateful. He was so enamored with Joseph and his wisdom and his leadership. This is what he says to Joseph, okay? I, I mean, like, the words are so powerful and radical. This is what he says in Genesis chapter 45. Take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat of the fat of the land. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. You know what he's saying? Pharaoh is telling Joseph, go call your family. Tell them to come down to Egypt. We're going to take care of them. I mean, they don't even have to worry about packing. Don't even worry about packing your stuff because I'm going to give you the best things that Egypt has to offer. And so they settled in this land called Goshen. And Goshen was the best part of the best land that Egypt had to offer. This is what Joseph's Pharaoh offered his people. But the new Pharaoh, when he arose, he wanted to be a tyrant over Israel. He disregarded that promise. He disregarded that concern. He forgot. He did not know Joseph. This new Pharaoh is driven by fear. He's concerned and convinced that the Hebrews in Egypt have become too powerful, and now they pose a threat. If we go to war, they're going to join our enemies. They're going to defeat us. They're going to run away from us. So he instead enslaves them. He enslaves them under heavy-handed taskmasters, and they were ruthless. Moses uses that word twice, ruthless, over the Hebrews. The Hebrews built cities and structures for the Egyptians. Their lives became bitter and filled with hard labor. We're going to read more about that and their affliction uh, as our study and our series uh, progresses. But here's the crazy thing. That's Pharaoh's will. He wants to oppress, right? He wants to subdue the Israelites. They become too many. We need to, we need to just wear them out so they can stop having babies, right? We need to exhaust them so their families don't grow and flourish. But despite Pharaoh's efforts to suppress the Hebrews, they kept multiplying. They kept growing. They kept filling the land. Why? Because God was with them. God was mightier than the will of Pharaoh. And so God continued to bless his people. And Pharaoh wasn't able to stop God's fulfillment of his promise. What did he say? I'm going to make you a great nation in Egypt. As foreigners, right? As the minority, you guys are going to flourish. Then Pharaoh, frustrated, angry, he hatched a truly evil and diabolical plan to control Israel's population. He commanded first that the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew midwives uh, kill every baby boy that is born. Okay? Uh, the, these weren't Egyptian midwives. These are Hebrew midwives because they had Hebrew names. They had Hebrew names. Um, 
And I know it sounds like there were two midwives for all of the Hebrews, but that's actually not the case. Um, these uh, Shifra and Pua, they were the kind of heads, like the, the leaders, the organizers of all of the midwives. Think of just like union chiefs, right, uh, for the midwives. And that's what they were doing, okay? And so uh, Pharaoh commands them, hey, you and all of the midwives serving Israel kill every baby boy that is born. That will control their population, and also it'll weaken them. It'll weaken them from being able to revolt and wage war against us without an entire generation of boys and men. However, how did these midwives respond? The scriptures tell us they feared God. They feared God more than Pharaoh, and so they let the boys live. In order to protect the boys, the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh's commands. And in order to protect all of the midwives serving the Hebrews, they lied to Pharaoh's face. What did they say? Pharaoh says, why aren't you killing the boys? Why aren't you obeying? And they say, man, Pharaoh, these, these Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. They give birth quickly. Uh, my friends and I, we would hear birth stories, and some people would be like, yeah, we're in labor for like 22 hours, and we're like, oh my gosh, please don't let that be us. And then another person was like, yeah, I pushed three times, and the baby came out. I'm like, oh, vigorous Hebrew woman. Um, but uh, that, 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 wasn't, uh, that wasn't necessarily the case, right? Moses actually clearly says, no, 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 no. The midwives let them live. And so these women, they, they lie to Pharaoh's face. They lie to Pharaoh's face. Now, um, a lot of ink has been spilled on whether it was right for these midwives to lie. What do you guys think? Was that a sin? Was it a lie? Oh, what is it? Yeah, was it wrong for them to lie to Pharaoh? Uh, a lot of people have written a lot of different opinions. I just want to share mine. First, I want to say this. I do not believe in situational ethics, okay? I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I don't believe that the right or wrong is determined by our situations, okay? That's what situational ethics is. The right deed or the wrong deed is defined by the situation and the circumstance. No, the Bible says a lie is always a lie. The truth is always the truth. It's not defined by the situation. But the reality is this. We live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, sometimes we are forced to make difficult decisions in cases of civil disobedience and to protect the lives of the innocent. Okay? And so we then have to ask, what is the ethically right, more heinous act? To lie to someone or to murder a baby, right? I mean, both, both are troublesome, right? Lying is always wrong. Murder is always wrong, okay? But which has more weight, right? Which demands our obedience and commitment more? And the actual truth is this, the preservation of life. The preservation of life has a higher demand, a higher burden for us than lying to a government official. It doesn't make lying not lying and not wrong. Um, but we live in a fallen world. This is why... Rahab lies to protect the spies, right? This is why uh, men and women would hide Jews from the Nazis and lie on their behalf. This is why uh, citizens from the North in our country or even in the South, they would lie to help hide runaway slaves from the South. This is why these midwives lied to save babies from Pharaoh's wrath. And we see actually God confirming them God blessing them, uh, confirming the courage of the midwives. How? He gives them families of their own. 
This is another great irony, okay? Pharaoh wanted to do what? Reduce the population, right? Shrink down the number of Hebrews, but instead God does the exact opposite, frustrating the will of Pharaoh. You know what? These midwives who didn't even have husbands, who didn't even have children, I'm going to bless them and give them families and children of their own. Pharaoh, you want to shrink the Hebrews? I'm going to grow the Hebrews. Who is stronger? God or Pharaoh, right? Then Pharaoh, he issues another terrible decree. And he says, every Hebrew boy, cast them into the Nile River. You know, the the midwives are not obeying me. What I want you to do is take every newborn boy and throw him into the Nile, drown him in the Nile. Now, the Nile was the great river in Egypt and was a symbol of life. It was a symbol of prosperity to the Egyptians, but it was about to turn into a graveyard, a graveyard for Israel's future, a graveyard for Israel's sons. Imagine the dread. Imagine the fear that struck every household, every pregnant woman, every expecting father, every grandparent who just longs to hold their grandson. Now they're in dread and fear of Pharaoh and his decree. There were no ultrasounds back then. You would only know the gender at, at delivery, right? I had a couple of friends who they're like, yeah, we're, we're not gonna do a gender identification. We're just gonna find out when the baby comes. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm too OCD. I'm too much of a control freak to do that. But how exciting, right? How exciting for us not to know the gender until birth, right? But for them, this moment of excitement This moment of joy, this moment of life turned into a moment of dread. Oh, Lord, please let it not be a boy. Please let it not be a boy. But Pharaoh doesn't have the final word. He doesn't have the final word. As we continue through the book of Exodus, you're going to see that this Nile River, this chief dominant symbol of power and life to the Egyptians, God uses it to become an instrument of his will. Moses, the great redeemer of Israel, where is he found? He's floating in a basket on the Nile River. And as one of the princesses in Pharaoh's house finds him, she takes him, raises him as her own, and Moses becomes a prince in the house of Pharaoh. God would use the Nile as a demonstration of his great power during the plagues. The frogs would come up from the Nile in the plague of the frogs and torment all of the houses of Israel. God would turn the Nile into a river, not of life, but a river of blood to the fear and dread of the Egyptians. And finally, water. As Pharaoh wants to use water to drown the Hebrews. No, God uses water to save it, save his people. As they walk and they cross the Red Sea, God God saves his people as they walk through the the, the waters that have parted. Instead, it's the waters that overwhelm and drown the Egyptian army, the Egyptian powers, all to prove that God is mightier. God is mightier than Pharaoh. God is mightier than the gods of Egypt. God is mightier than all. So what do we take away from this first passage? The first, I want to say this, um, this, palace, this passage informs our understanding of ethics and sin. Okay? It challenges our convictions and our worldview. Okay? If Pharaoh is depicted as the great enemy to God, if he's the great enemy to God's people, 
What do we make of his actions? What do we make of his attitude? And the question is this, are you more in line with Pharaoh in his actions and attitude, or are you more in line with God? What am I talking about specifically? It's his treatment of foreigners and his treatment towards newborns, babies. I want to talk specifically about immigration and abortion, brothers and sisters. Now, I'm not here to platform for a political view. I'm not here at all telling you to vote red or blue, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, none of those things. I just want you to consider what is your ethical conviction? What is your worldview? And the question is this, is it biblical? Is it biblical? Not political, not traditional, not cultural, but is it biblical? What did Pharaoh do to the Hebrews? He feared them. He wanted to oppress them. He saw these immigrants as invaders, taking their resources, reaping all of the benefits from their land, and yet not being of them. And so what does he want to do? He oppresses them. He enslaves them. He fear mongers uh, towards them so that all of Egypt was in dread of Israel. Israel had lived in peace for hundreds of years in Egypt, not revolting once, not causing any problems for Egypt, but because of his xenophobia, uh, xenophobia, because of his anxiety, because of his sin, he turned an entire nation against these Hebrew immigrants. Out of his pride, out of his fear, out of his sin, he commands the destruction of all of these Hebrew boys, whether it's at birth or in the Nile. He has disregard for life. He has disregard for the most vulnerable in society. Brothers and sisters, what is our attitude as we consider our cultural narrative right now when we are faced with a pro-life, pro-choice debate when we hear of news and, and talk about what to do with immigrants and borders and, 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 and people who are seeking refugee status, do we have the heart of Pharaoh? Do we have the attitude of Pharaoh? Do we have the heart of God? You see, our God is the Lord of creation. Our God is the author of life. And this is what he says to his people in Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19. God executes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You see that? He's telling Israel, you better love the aliens. You better love people who come into your home, into your land, into your cities, looking for refuge, looking for help, looking for compassion, looking for grace. Why? Because you know what it's like to be a sojourner. You know what it's like to be mistreated. You know what it's like to be oppressed. But also, Israel, you know what it's like to experience grace. You know what it's like to experience unmerited favor. And brothers and sisters, this is us. You and I, we are all sojourners. We are all invited into the kingdom of God, into the household of God, not because we deserve it, not because we have special status or standing, not because we have achieved it, but because of God's grace. We are grafted in to the vine that is Jesus Christ. Because of his grace, we get a seat at the banqueting table of God. We are sojourners. So take care of other sojourners merciful towards them. 
What, is your, what are your ethical convictions, brothers and sisters? Are they biblical? Are they just? Do they reflect the heart of God or some other worldview? I'm gonna tell you this. The Bible is clearly pro-life and pro-immigrant. And in our culture today, our politics, there's no party that fits pro-life and pro-immigrant. So what do we do? Okay. That's why um, don't let one party co-opt your vote. You know, there's no one party that's the Christian party. Examine the scriptures, right? Um, pray through the issues. Vote according to your conscience. But more than your politics, more than your voting, voting and how you fill out a ballot, the question is this, what will you live out in your ethical convictions? How will you love your neighbor? How will you care for the most vulnerable, for the most weak in our, in our society, in the womb and outside of the womb? We are called to model the heart of our God. Brothers and sisters, would we live according to a biblical worldview, not just a political, cultural one? Second, the second application for us is this. God's people are never alone. Guys, you're never alone. Even in the midst of our suffering and our hardship, we must always remember that we're not alone. With Israel becoming enslaved, with their babies being slaughtered, we see over and over again, even in our passage, that God remembers his people. He keeps his promises. He's watching over his people. Even when God seems silent, when you, when you can't hear his voice, we don't sense his presence, he is there and he is working. Did you know in Exodus chapter one, God has no lines? He doesn't say anything. Pharaoh has lines. The midwives has lines. The rest, Moses narrates. God doesn't speak in the book of Exodus until the end of chapter two. Okay, it's really weird because in the beginning, in the beginning, Genesis one, God's like, let there be light. Boom, he's already speaking. He's already going, right? But in Exodus, he's silent. But as you read that, is he absent? The answer is no. He's so present with his people in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their enslavement, our God is with us. We are never alone. We must always remember this. Our God is a God who's able to work out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, suffering has this unique power to transform and change our lives. Uh, if there was no oppression, if there was no slavery in Egypt, how would Israel have responded? They would have just stayed, right? He said, Moses, we're living in Goshen, right? That's like the Beverly Hills, the, the Santa Monica of Egypt. This is the best land. Why would we want to live? I leave. We're doing well. We're doing just fine. I don't care about the promised land. This is the promised land. They would have just assimilated into Egyptian culture. Perhaps they would have just started worshiping the Egyptian gods because it was working for them. But no, they become oppressed. They become enslaved. And what do they do? They cry out. And they don't cry out to Ra. They don't cry out to Pharaoh. They cry out to their God. They say, God, remember us. God, save us. God, deliver us. They wouldn't have left if they were prospering. But it's actually through their suffering that they sought out their Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is how God works out his will in our lives as well. Um, I don't think I've ever said this in a sermon. Because it's just such a cliche but I want to say it now. Um, 
truly, God's ways are mysterious. Okay. His ways are mysterious. Um, his ways are higher than ours. We don't know why he does everything that he does, but one thing is for sure, he is sovereign. He's Lord over history. Our God is not a God who's victim to human decision and human will. He's sovereign over all things. And according to and in light of his sovereign will, God is the God who allows his people to become enslaved. He allowed his people to become exiled. He allowed his prophets to be killed. His temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed. Ultimately, our God, according to his sovereign, good, and perfect will, he led his beloved son his only begotten son, to suffer and be crucified on the cross. Why? Also that he could redeem us. Also that he could save us. Also that he could adopt us in as sojourners into his family, into his kingdom, into his household. God is Lord over history. So brothers and sisters, even when the suffering feels immense, even when you're praying and you feel like God isn't listening and he's definitely not speaking because you can't hear his voice and you can't sense his presence, brothers and sisters, remember this, you are never alone. God is with you. God is with you. In Revelation chapter six, as the rider of death is afflicting his people, oh, the people of God, they cry out. I mean, it's a, it's a dramatic scene. They cry out, how long, O Lord? How much longer do we have to suffer? How much longer are you going to allow your people to die at the hands of evil and wicked men? And you know what God says? He says, just a little while longer. Endure just a little more. And before you know it, Jesus Christ is going to come. And he's the rider on the white horse. And in Revelation 21, we're told that he will come to wipe every tear from our eyes. And when he comes, he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. And we will experience the consummation of God's everlasting kingdom. Brothers and sisters, if you are in a season of suffering, if you are in the eye of the storm, that is God's word for you today. Just wait a little while longer. Wait and your faith will become sight. Wait, and just as God rescued his people in Egypt, just as God brought his people out of the exile, just as God has sustained the early church from persecution for 2,000 years, Jesus Christ will come back. He will wipe every tear from our eye. He will wipe every tear from our eye. Would you wait on him? Would you endure just a little while longer? And would you allow your suffering not to destroy you, but your suffering to lead you and press you towards our Savior? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the amazing story that we're about to really start unpacking in the book of Exodus. And I pray that we wouldn't just be learning more about Jewish history but instead, Lord, would we be learning about our spiritual history and how you have always sustained your people through every season, through every trial, through every struggle. Truly, God, you are God of your people and you never have abandoned your people, Lord. 
So I pray, Lord, that that gospel truth would be for us today, that we would believe that you are with us, even when it's hard to feel you, even when it's difficult to hear you and sense you. Help us believe. Would you encourage us and sustain us? We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.